go ahead and turn your Bibles if you haven't already. Um, and if you have your Bible, go to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. That's where we'll be camping out this morning. In my house, in my living room, there is a, a large wood-framed sign in our living room, and it says this. Life is amazing, and then it's awful, and then it's amazing again. And in between the amazing and awful, it's ordinary and mundane and routine. Breathe in the amazing, hold on through the awful, and relax and exhale during the ordinary. That's just living heartbreaking, soul-healing, amazing, awful, ordinary life, and it's breathtakingly beautiful. That's what we have. It's one of the signs in our, our living room. Because that's, that's life. Life is a mixture of happiness and sadness, mourning and joy, pain and pleasure. And Jesus himself even said, in this world you will have what? Tribulation or trials. While at the same time, Jesus says, I have come to give you what? Life and life abundantly or life to the fullness. How, how can we live in a world of trial and also experience life to the fullest? Because when Jesus says he came to give us life to the fullest, he, he didn't just say, to be experienced only in the future, but that he's beginning that eternal life now if you've trusted in Christ. So how do we have both of those? How do we hold on to that tension? What does living life to the full looks like, look like when life is chaotic and you can't trust whether or not today is going to be full of pain or pleasure? You understand that question? What does living life to the full mean when you don't know if today is going to be full of pains or pleasures? That's a good and legitimate question. And essentially what you're asking, if you ask that question, you're asking, what is God's will for how I'm supposed to live in this heartbreaking, soul-healing, amazing, awful, ordinary life? Now, thankfully, God actually tells us. God reveals to us how we are to live, and that's the focus of this sermon this morning. Now, when I say God tells us how to live, I'm not saying that in this text, God is telling us all the specifics of, of what we're supposed to do in every specific circumstance. But what God tells us through Paul is how our demeanor, our attitude, our approach should be in all circumstances in life. This brief passage tells us how to live in the midst of the breathtakingly beautiful life God has given to those who trust in God. And that should encourage our souls. So, so if you're struggling, if you're struggling to know God's will, the Apostle Paul tells us right here. And the main idea of the sermon today is this. God's will for his children is that they would be rejoicing, prayerful, thankful people. That's God's will. Let's read verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, linguistically, 
all three of these commands are connected together by the word for in verse 18. The word for in verse 18 connects to each of these commands. So it's, it's God's will to rejoice always. It's God's will to pray without ceasing. It's God's will to give thanks in all circumstances. And it's God's will that all three of these things are continually happening in the Christian's life. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It's God's will. Now, as you hear this, some of you might be tempted to say, are you kidding me? That's crazy. Pastor Timothy, you have no idea what's going on in my life. And, and, and it sounds absurd to say these three things must continually take place in the believer's life. So maybe you feel that way because of the trials you're experiencing. Or maybe you're feeling this way uh, because of the mundaneness you feel in life. And you feel like, what's the point of living? Or maybe when you look at this text... You're discouraged because you see pray without ceasing and you go, if that's God's will, I've already failed. Have you ever felt that way before when you read that? Yeah. Some of us, when we think about doing God's will, I think we'd, want, we'd rather ignore these three things and we'd say, why can't God's will just be waking up in the morning, not killing anyone, being nice to someone, going home, going to bed? and doing it all over again. That would be so much easier. Could that be God's will? <laughs> but God, God doesn't simply want to give us an easy life. Jesus says he came to give us a full life, right? And life to the fullness. And that life can only be found in communion and relationship with him. And in the communion and relationship with the Lord, we begin to express that communion through gratitude and prayer and rejoicing. So as we approach this uh, week of Thanksgiving, I hope and pray that this sermon serves as a wonderful complement to the previous week's sermons and that our hearts would be filled with God's kindness so that we truly are a prayerful, grateful, rejoicing people. So with that understanding, we're going to try to figure out just these three commands that are given here. What, what do these words actually mean so that we can know how to do God's will in this life and so that we can pray that God would unite our hearts with those realities so we'd actually live it out? I, I hope we have that mentality here. Do you know the only way we can obey this is by the grace that God gives? So you can know all the right information, but we need to be like the psalmist, unite my heart to this truth. So we're going to start with the first point. Christians are to be a rejoicing people. So what I'm going to do with each of the commands is answer three questions. What, when, and why? I think that's what Paul wants us to understand. So we look at the verse, we look at verse 16, rejoice always, and we start with the what question. What are we to do? What are we to do? Rejoice. All right, now what does that mean to rejoice? Does that mean that we always put on a smile on our face? And if someone asks you how you're doing, hey, how are you doing? Well, I'm rejoicing. How was your week? I'm rejoicing. No, like really, what's been going on in your life? 
I, I don't think that's what rejoice means, to ignore whatever is taking place. Does rejoice mean here only to be happy when the sun is shining, but when it's dreary and rainy to be grumbling? In times of prosperity, be happy, but in times of pain and in seasons of drought, to complain? This word actually for rejoice here is not connected to temporal circumstances. That's what's really interesting about this Greek word. It's not connected to temporal circumstances or like things that we go through. It's not saying rejoice because we have this, this, and this. Okay? Instead, this word for rejoice, let me give you the definition. The definition of this Greek word is to enjoy a state of happiness and well-being. Now, you could look at this and maybe be like me and say, well, I'm not experiencing a state of happiness right now, so I don't need to rejoice. But you might miss the point. Again, this word is not connected to our life circumstances or dependent on our life circumstances. So let's look at other examples where the Apostle Paul talks about rejoicing in different circumstances. Like, for example, in Colossians, Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Would this be a situation where, where we would say, oh man, would you say, I love it when I suffer? Would you say that? You think what Paul is saying is, I just love the fact that people hate Jesus so much that they put me in prison. You think that's what Paul means by this? It's not a hard question. No. That's not what Paul means by this. He's saying, I rejoice in the midst of my sufferings, right? For your sake. How can he rejoice in the midst of suffering? Rejoice is not connected, is not dependent on the life circumstances. Or Paul elsewhere says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Just in these two passages, we see that rejoicing can happen in the midst of sorrow. Rejoicing can happen in the midst of suffering. Do we see that? So rejoicing is not dependent on whether or not you have prosperity in your life. It's something more. So let's think about that definition again. It involves a state of happiness and well-being. When it's saying a state of happiness, it's not saying how you feel. A lot of times, we in our culture especially, we, we define everything on our feelings. And that's not very trustworthy. What, what this is meaning, let, let me put it this way, when you look at the scriptures, you look at the context of scriptures, if you are someone who has been reconciled with God because of Jesus Christ, do you realize you're at peace with God? Do you know that? And when, when, when the Bible uses the word peace, it's actually this military term of meaning you're no longer an enemy, you're at peace with. Because when you were born, you were an enemy of God, you're a sinner, and you, you, you rejected God. And yet Jesus came and took the punishment your sins deserved and conquered over sin and conquered over death. And the Holy Spirit opened your eyes at a certain point in time and God drew you into his arms. You're no longer an enemy, you are his child. You are, therefore, in a state of well-being. Whether you feel it or not, you are in the happy, blessed state 
Nothing can change your relationship with God. Amen? He will hold you fast. Why? Because he loves you so. He made promises to you. You are in a state of well-being. So the Apostle Paul could rejoice in the midst of suffering. Right? Because he knew that God was over all. And that he knew in the midst of all of this. This is phenomenal. Romans 8 tells us, Christian. Romans 8 tells us that God, if I can use it this way, God forces everything to submit to his good plans for you. Your eternal well-being. Everything. So while Paul suffers, he is completely confident that God is working all these things together for our good. That's why he can rejoice. That's why we can rejoice in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering. So when I look at this command to rejoice always, I actually look at rejoicing as an act of faith. Rejoicing is an action of faith. If you're living by trust in Jesus, you rejoice in the hardship because you're actually confessing that even the pain and the sorrow does not take away your eternal well-being. Death, life, persecution, famine, sword, nakedness, peril, what Paul talks about in Romans 8, nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But the focus of the rejoicing, so the focus of rejoicing is not on the basis of circumstances. The focus of the rejoicing is on the basis of our our union with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, even earlier in this chapter, you have your Bibles open, or actually in chapter 4, he says, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. What was that phrase? Rejoice. What are the next three words? In the Lord always. The rejoicing is on the basis of Jesus Christ, not on the basis of what I'm experiencing in this life. It's on the basis of Jesus Christ. I can rejoice always in him. Because Jesus came to redeem all things. He carried our burdens and our sorrows and our pains. Jesus came to redeem everything. And when you rejoice in God in the midst of life, you are saying, I trust, I trust him. I trust him with it all. I trust that not one tear is wasted. I trust not one sorrow is wasted. I trust that every joy even matters for eternity. I trust him. Our rejoicing, when we rejoice, we should let it defy despair counter the lies of the enemy in our own flesh. So rejoice. Always. That's that's the next question. When? When are we to rejoice? We're to rejoice always. Now the always, I believe, means in all things. Again, that doesn't mean that we are to rejoice. That doesn't mean that all things are good that happen in this life. Satan intends things for evil. Joseph talks to his brothers and said, you intend things for evil. We don't rejoice in the fact that people hate or reject God, right? 
But in the midst of all of those things, we know we are in the ultimate state of eternal well-being. We're in the ultimate state of happiness. We're in union with the sovereign over all creation. So we can rejoice always. And then the question that we have is, why? Why should we do this? Of course, Paul says right here in this text, it's God's will. That should be enough to convince us, right? God's commands are not burdensome. God always does what is right and good. This is God's will to rejoice always. As obedient children, we should say, okay, then I'll rejoice always. I do want to add, though, a little bit more, even from the context of the book of Philippians. If we go back to Philippians chapter 4, and I'll have it on the screen here. I just read this portion. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. But then, next sentence. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So, so if you looked at, at this, this answer that I gave, why should we rejoice always? It's, it's reasonable. Isn't that an interesting response of Paul? I mean, if you truly believe, if you know that left to yourself, if you were left to yourself, you would deserve God's just punishment. But, but you know that Jesus came to this earth and sought after you to give you eternal life and reconciliation with God. If you know that nothing can thwart God's plans and, and even the sufferings of this present life are preparing an eternal weight of glory right now. It's in the present tense, by the way. Are preparing an eternal weight of glory. If you are suffering today, God is preparing the eternal weight of glory now for you. If you know all of those things, and you know that Jesus is with you, he's at hand. That's what it means, that the Lord is near you. If you know he's never leaving you and has never forsaken you, the only reasonable response is to rejoice. I have hope. I'm not left to despair. Rejoicing is the reasonable response for those who have been saved by Jesus. Your mind is set. By the way, again, this doesn't mean that you don't sorrow, right? Because Paul says, sorrowing yet always rejoicing. It goes together. But I can rejoice in the midst of the sorrows because of my God. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, and as I assume all of you know, I was in Africa for a week and a half, almost two weeks, and, and, and it was a very intriguing trip. People asked me, how was it? How was it? Was it great? Was it amazing? You know? And um, I'll, I'll say it was intriguing, and it was a learning experience, because actually for me, almost, well, before I left the airport, in the capital of Sierra Leone, I began to experience what I could only say is spiritual attack. This oppression or, or like a darkness kind of coming alongside of me or over me. And I was scared. What's going on? Why is this happening? And initially, I tried to, I tried to counter it by trying to convince myself that I have this under control. I can handle this, I can do this, it's fine, I'm fine, whatever, we gotta move on. You know, you, 
I have these plans in my mind of how the trip is supposed to be, you know? So this is what it is. This is what's going to happen. But, but it wouldn't go away. At one point in time, I reached out to Kaiki with the, the WhatsApp app, if any of you have that, and asked him, please pray for me. I don't know what's going on. This is what I'm experiencing. And at, at a certain point in time, God graciously reminded me that I'm not going to fight this effectively by trusting that I have this under control. Instead, I need to trust that he has it under control. Whether the cloud lifts or stays, he's in control, and he's good, and he will hold me fast. And so one of the ways I actually fought the despair or the feelings that were there was one morning, I got my phone, and I opened up iTunes, and I opened up a Getty album, and just started playing the songs. And then I started singing. Did it all go away? No, it didn't all go away. Did it immensely help to encourage me, to remind me that God has this under his control? Absolutely. And it wasn't just me listening, I sang, right? I chose, Lord, by faith I'm singing. And I'm singing these words. Rejoice always. Rejoice in all circumstances. We're children of God. We're in an eternally blessed state. We don't need to give in to the enemy's lies. We need to confess the realities of our hope in Christ through rejoicing. So rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, rejoice Christians are to be a rejoicing people. And Paul shows us Christians are to be a praying people. So what is he saying again? What are we to do? We are to pray. Now, now this word for prayer here in the Greek is, is the generic word for prayer. It simply refers to speaking to God. It can include all forms of speech, so, for example, James 4 talks about Christians needing to lament, weep, and mourn before the Lord. The Psalms are filled with laments, right? That's communication with God. This also would include something like when Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, that we are to ask, and it will be given to you. So asking is a part of communicating with God. 1 Peter 5, 7 talks about us humbling ourselves and bearing our burdens to the Lord or casting our burdens at the Lord's feet. Those are all various forms of of prayer. This would fall under this category of prayer. But the point of Paul here is that God's will is that you and I would be praying people. I actually love how these three, in these three commands, prayer is sandwiched in the middle. I think that's on purpose, or I at least speculate it's on purpose. But I think it's on purpose because in the midst of the rejoicing and in the midst of the gratitude, in the midst of living an awful, ordinary, beautiful, mundane life, we experience all of these different types of things. And we can't do life for the glory of God without God. If we're, listen, praying, when you hear pray without ceasing, 
pray without ceasing doesn't simply say, mean speaking words into the sky. You know that, right? Prayer is communion with God. It's fellowship with God. It's not just talking to. It's, it's, it's talking to and with and, and knowing his goodness and grace. It's communing with him. I am not going to be a grateful, rejoicing person if I'm not dependent on him in prayer. You get that? We're always needy. Do you, do you experience that in life? In, in any given day, I've got this going on and then this going on over here. God, I can't handle this. I can't do this in my own strength. You have this joy that takes place. Lord, thank you so much for your kindnesses. You have this sorrow. Lord, I bear these burdens before you. Apart from him, we can do nothing. With him, all things are possible. Pray. Pray. Because we're needy for his help, pray because he's always willing and ready to answer. So we go into that next question. When? When are we to do this? We are to do this without ceasing. Now what does without ceasing mean? When I was younger, I took this extremely literally. Like, am I supposed to pray when I'm sleeping? And then, like, if somebody's talking to me, I'm supposed to be praying while they're talking to me, and there's no way I'm going to understand what they're saying if I'm praying while they're talking to me. God, I don't understand what without ceasing means. And if I could word it this way, without ceasing means that when you say amen, that doesn't mean talk to you later, God. It's an ongoing communion with him. That, that, that our, our mind, heart, and soul is settled in him in the midst of all of life, in the midst of whatever is taking place. There's no real end to it. Now, some people might say, well, that's impossible. That's impossible to do, or that sounds so oppressive. Let me just remind you again. Jesus says his commands are not, what? Burdensome. So it's not oppressive if you are a child of God. But let me, get, let me ask you a question. Maybe this will be helpful. If I were to say to you, you need to breathe a lot without ceasing. You need to breathe without ceasing. Would you go, oh man, that's so oppressive. Would you say that? No. Why? Because we need to breathe. You know, it's actually oppressive when we hold in our breath for a long time. Oh, I'm going to die. When you look at the scriptures, or even when you look at saints through the ages over the last 2,000 years, and they talk about prayer, you'll find different saints who will say that the scriptures seem to communicate about prayer as though it is our breath. It's the breath of our very being. God has renewed you in the Holy Spirit. Amen? And that new man, that new person that is, that is you, that God is renewing, longs to pray. Now your flesh doesn't want to pray. Okay, so there is that war, like Galatians 5, the flesh lusts against the spirit. But that new man wants to pray. And so we are commanded to pray without ceasing because it's the breath of the new man. It's a good thing. It's a glorious privilege. Now you could say, but Pastor Timothy, I don't even know where to begin with this. I don't know how to start praying without ceasing. Here's, here's an encouragement I'll give to you that God has given to me 
just in the morning when you wake up, say, God, can you remind me of your presence throughout the day today so that I would pray? That's it. God, would you remind me of your presence today so that I will begin praying without ceasing? I do believe if that's a genuine prayer, he's going to answer it. I know he's done it in me. Where, where now, when I experience a kindness of God, my, my mind thinks, God gave that to me. Lord, thank you. Or when I, when I am talking to someone who's struggling, I, I'm, I'm more prone now to pray for them immediately. God, just remind me of your presence. So I begin to pray more. Now you say, why would I do this? Now again, in this text, the answer is, it's God's will. It's God's will. But I want to add a little bit more here. Why is it God's will? And I love what Jesus says in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I want to break this down a little bit so that we can see the beginning and the end of this verse in this statement. Jesus chose them so that, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Or to, to break it down even a little bit more, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we could pray. That's why we should pray. Because Jesus died to reconcile you to God so that when you talk to the eternal, immortal creator overall, he will listen to you. What? And he will respond to you as his own child. Why pray? Why pray? Because Jesus died for this communion. Pray without ceasing. With him, all things are possible. So, so we see Christians are to be a rejoicing people. We see people are to be, Christians are to be a praying people. And then finally, Christians are to be a thankful people. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So again, the what question, what are we to do? We're to give thanks. Oh, I actually love this Greek word for thanksgiving here. This one is actually different. You know, the rejoicing is not on the basis of our, of our circumstances, or it's not dependent on our circumstances. This word for giving thanks, while it's not dependent on the circumstances, it, it recognizes the circumstances. So, so this includes the temporal blessings of life and the eternal blessings of life that we should be giving thanks to God for. This would be for me, I give thanks to God for my wife. I give thanks to God for my children. I give thanks to God for my church family. I give thanks to God that I have heat in my house. Listen, my, for me, my gratitude has increased after having been in one of the poorest countries in the world. And it literally is one of the poorest countries in the world. Everything everything is better in America than it is there. Everything. How much do we have to be thankful for, right? 
everything that we have is such graciousness and kindness. And what we see in the scriptures is that when we actually see the kindnesses of God, Romans chapter 2 says, God's kindness is meant to what? Lead you to repentance. If we, if we ask the Lord for eyes to see the kindnesses he's given to us, then we will grow in repentance. Will we not? That, that repentance meaning that we will turn from sins in our lives and that we will actually turn to him all the more and cling to him all the more because of his great love that he has loved us with. All the kindnesses. God, thank you for this. Thank you for this. And the scriptures, Paul even tells us that we're to receive these things with thanksgiving because we don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It was just given in God's kindness. And so when we're a grateful people, Lord willing, if we're truly grateful, then we grow in our zeal for God and his glory. Now, by the way, this Thanksgiving also recognizes our need to express the gratitude for the eternal as well. It's not just the temporal things that we have. So whether, again, we're going through painful or pleasurable circumstances, we can be thankful to God because we can rejoice in him that we have unity with him. We can be thankful for him and his plans and trust him. I can give thanks that his grace is always sufficient. Right? It's always sufficient. I remember one time talking to an individual when I, I mentioned his grace is sufficient, and they, they kind of put that down. Like, oh, it's just sufficient. Like, it's just enough. That's not what that text means. Sufficient means it is totally filled for the circumstance. If we have that understanding, then we can be like Job who says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And what does he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or Joseph talking about his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We can be a grateful people. We can give thanks. And when are we to do this? We are to do this in all circumstances. So don't pick and choose. Don't pick and choose the circumstances to give thanks. I will be thankful for this. I will not be thankful for this. I mean, I think we've all done it. I know I've done it before. No, God, I am not going to be thankful. I'm going to pout over there in the corner. No, no, no. In the midst of all circumstances, give thanks. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at there. We give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks is an act of faith as well, isn't it? To give thanks in the midst of all circumstances is an act of faith. Because we thank God for our union with him and what he promises for us. But we also see an example of giving thanks, uh, not only for the eternal realities in Christ, but Paul talks in 1 Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Ventura, I give thanks to God for you. Man, I was away from my church family for two weeks. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm away from my family and I'm away from my church family. This is hard. I miss you people. I love you. And we give thanks to God for the blessings. 
But then Paul just says in Colossians, in all of life, whatever you do, in word or action, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let gratitude flow from your lips in all that you do. Now you say, why? Why do I do this? Now again, it's God's will. Why is it God's will? I find this word for gratitude, this this is particularly, I think, it's a particularly cross-centered act. Some people might say, I can't be grateful in the midst of hardships. But did you know that Jesus expressed gratitude in the midst of hardships? This word, excuse me, this word for give thanks in the Greek, I'm going to say the word and see if it sounds like something to you. Eucharisteo. Do you hear the word that we say in English? What is it? Eucharist. In in certain other um, church contexts, they'll refer to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion. They'll refer to it as the Eucharist. It's the giving of thanks meal. What? Why are we giving thanks? Aren't we remembering that Jesus was slaughtered on the cross? Like, how are we giving thanks? And the reason why is because we're told in the story when Jesus is with his disciples, what does it say? He, he broke the bread and gave thanks. And he gives the cup, he gave thanks. What's Jesus giving thanks for? Is Jesus saying, oh, Father, thank you so much that people hate you? That's not what Jesus is saying. He is praising God that, that, that God is going to reconcile people to himself through Jesus' sacrifice. Thank you that through my broken body, people are going to be healed and restored for eternity. That through my blood being shed, there's going to be a people who are then declared righteous in your sight because of the righteousness that I have. Thank you. That that should always astound us, Ventura. Why would Jesus thank the Father that he could suffer in our place and save us? Why does Jesus want to save sinners? That's, that's a question we will, I think, ask for all eternity in awe. But Jesus does. He gives thanks, and we're told in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And the scriptures tell us, those of us who believe, we follow in the same trajectory. Christian, you have joy set before you, Right? You have an eternal home that's set before you. We have a feast that's not just happening on Thursday that we're looking forward to. We're going to feast in the house of Zion. We have home to look forward to. For the joy set before us now, by the grace of God, we can give thanks too. We can rejoice in the goodness of our Father who has saved us in Jesus Christ. So we see the reason why Jesus gave thanks in saving sinners in his suffering. So we can, as an act of faith and trust in our Father. Now, if you're like me, you hear this. This is God's will. Rejoice, pray, give thanks, always 
without ceasing in all circumstances. And we come to the end of this sermon and you say, easier said than done, Pastor Timothy. Easier said than done. Stop. God never said this was easy. And I said this towards the beginning. This isn't, this isn't easy. It's impossible apart from the Spirit. You will not live this way by sheer willpower, praising and glorying in God. You can't praise and glorify God by sheer willpower because apart from faith or dependence, it's impossible to please God. So if you say easier said than done and then you walk away from today saying, well, I'm off the hook because it's just too hard. No, it's impossible for all of us. But what have we said earlier? Without him, it's impossible. But with him, what? All things are possible. Christian, you have the spirit. It's possible. Not because of the strength that you have, but because of the strength that he has given to you in himself. And that's exactly where Paul goes in this text. Right after that, Paul says, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Who's going to do it? God. It's not your willpower. It's not you concluding, okay, I got this. No, God does. The God of peace will sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it really going to happen? Are we really going to grow in doing God's will? He who calls you is faithful. He will, say that word, surely do it. He will surely do it. Christians, are to be a rejoicing, praying, thankful people. Our God is faithful to empower us to grow in living this way. And since that's true, I think we ought to pray. The Lord would empower us daily to do his will by rejoicing, praying, and thanking him in all things. Your God is faithful. He will do it. So I'm going to pray for us. And then in a moment, we're going to conclude our time with a song and then a benediction. So pray with me, please. Father, Great is your faithfulness. You are good, kind, glorious. And I pray, Father, that right now, even, that by your Spirit, you would reach into each individual person here and, and be in our midst in such a way that we truly experience greater faith, greater reliance, dependence, clinging to you, that instead of running from you, we run to you. We can only do this, we can only do this by your strength, but we thank you, God, that Jesus died and rose again so that we could pray to you and know that you answer our prayers. So, we open our hands before you asking, God, for your blessing, for your mercy, for your grace to do what you must do through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hear these words now. More promises of God now to him who is able. By the way, when it says able here, it doesn't just mean that he's able. He's doing it. Now to him who is able to keep you from 
stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.